Hi, just before this podcast starts, it should be noted, this interview was recorded at the end of October, a couple of weeks before the US election. You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. The Mexican national team on the men's side is the most popular soccer team in the United States. And people hear that and... and like their head explodes, but like that's just the way it is. Some of these teams are spending 500, 600 million dollars in startup. Like at that point, why wouldn't you spend that money to buy a Premier League team where there's actual television revenue currently? It's a good question. Uh, And so I, I think with MLS, you're still betting on the future. The individual players on the US women's national team are the top six maybe are more popular and better known in the United States than the top six on the U.S. men's national team. So from a popularity perspective, the women's national team is in some ways more popular than the men's. And yet that hasn't carried over when you compare the women's professional league domestically to MLS. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time is Grant Wall. He's a very experienced, very esteemed US-based soccer journalist, spent many years at Sports Illustrated. And in this episode, we talk about journalism, the differences between US and UK journalism, and the growth of the sports in the US in particular. That's the national team, the women's game, and of course, MLS, a place where I spent a couple of years as Senior Director of Communications and Digital Media for the mighty Colorado Rapids. You can check out some of the work I did at Colorado Rapids and indeed Arsenal and Indonesian football and UAE football on my website, mrrichardclark.com. I'm a consultant in digital and social media, content, communication strategy, digital marketing. So if you need one of those, just let me know. I've also got a book out, actually, called Last Wicket Stand. It's on county cricket, midlife, life of the universe and everything, really. You can find that on Amazon or indeed on my website, Last Wicket Stand. And you can find me at Mr. Richard Clark on all social. Mr. Richard Clark and Sports Content Strategy is out there too. Anyway, let's talk US soccer in all its forms with the journalist who personifies US soccer to most people. And that is this man. My name is Grant Wall. Uh, I'm a soccer journalist. Uh, I've been doing soccer journalism in the US since 1996, so 24 years. Uh, I spent 23 of those years at Sports Illustrated. I've also done television work for Fox Sports. Uh, I have written two books. Uh, The first one was called The Beckham Experiment in 2009 about David Beckham's first two years with the LA Galaxy. And then I had a book called Masters of Modern Soccer come out in 2018 about the craft of soccer position by position and spent a couple of years interviewing really good players and coaches and sporting directors for that. So first question, this might be a tough one, but I'm going to go tough straight away, Grant. Um, Do you consider yourself a pioneer? 24 years as a soccer journalist in the US. Do you consider yourself a a pioneer? Well, maybe to some extent. I mean, like there are still very few full-time soccer journalists in the United States. and, And it's grown in number a little bit in recent years as the sport has grown in in stature, both the domestic sport and the popularity of European soccer and global soccer in the United States. But um, there certainly weren't 
many full-time soccer journalists when I started in 96. Even then, I was not a full-time soccer journalist. I, I covered college basketball as uh, my main sport in Sports Illustrated for a number of years, and I would do soccer on the side. And then I grew to like soccer journalism so much that I told my bosses at, at Sports Illustrated, I'd like to do this full-time, and finally started doing that full-time in 2009. So it's, it's only really been you know, a decade or so that I've been a full-time soccer journalist. And, you know, it's, uh, it's part of the growth, but I think it's also a reflection of the media landscape and how, uh, you know, media has had, you know, a tough time adjusting to the the advertising market in the last five to 10 years uh, in general. And that's certainly impacted sports media and and soccer media too. How do you, judge the demand is is one of the ways you have to do less persuading with editors <laughs> because you know i mean i was i was obviously comms for and digital for the colorado rapids and persuading editors was something that was alien to me having come from arsenal i had to persuade been a in a, a top six club top four club top two club even in england to well we were the fifth biggest team in the city of denver which wasn't the biggest city in the u.s so you know <laughs> that convincing was something that was new to me. And and do you have to convince less now? Yeah, I do have to convince less now. Um, That said, it's, it's still not that easy, you know, like the, the world cup has become a gigantic sporting event in the United States, both the men's world cup and the women's world cup. So that wasn't even the case, in my opinion, in the U.S. until ESPN really went in big on the World Cup, especially in 2010. Um, that was, I think, a, a watershed moment where um, where the sport of soccer really took a leap forward, at least in terms of its biggest event in the U.S., and it's interesting because ESPN took that risk and then made it a bigger property and ended up losing the property to a higher bidder in Fox, which has had the World Cups, you know, in 1822 and will have it in 26 and all the women's World Cups in between. But in terms of MLS, it's a harder sell actually sometimes these days with editors than uh, a story on the Premier League or Champions League. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that at a place like Sports Illustrated's website where you can measure the traffic, MLS stories get less traffic than stories on the Premier League or the Champions League. So, um, you know, that part's interesting. And, and so it's it's not just about soccer in America competing with other very established professional sports. It's also about competing within soccer. And, and MLS's challenge is to still i think it's a big challenge is to uh to compete against uh more established soccer leagues that that are more popular even in the us we'll come to mls in in a bit I do want to get your views on that so we we'll to talk about you as a as a sports journalist your first book is, uh, was um about beckham so how, how was that experience and yeah i mean i mean what story were you trying to tell? And was the, was the audience for it, the appetite for it very different back then? Because it seems a long time ago now, when Beckham went to the Galaxy. 
I, my book project, that book was the most rewarding single professional experience I've ever had. And um, in part because it was my first book, it was sort of stepping outside my comfort zone at Sports Illustrated where I had been for a long time, even then, to, to, to do something on my own. And it ended up being the first soccer book to make the New York Times bestseller list. So um, in starting that project, I had experience interviewing David Beckham before. I had done a big story in Sports Illustrated on him in 2003, right as he was getting sold to Real Madrid for Man United. And that was sort of introducing him to the United States, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. There had been this movie, Bend It Like Beckham, that had been surprisingly popular and, and had helped put the name Beckham in the, the minds of Americans. And it was clear, even in 2003, that he wanted to come to the US at some point. Uh, he was pretty specific about saying that. And part of that story was just trying to explain why this guy was so popular globally, uh, the history of his relationship with Sir Alex Ferguson. And I interviewed Sir Alex Ferguson at that point too, about like, if he's so popular, why are you wanting to sell him to Real Madrid? And it became a very sort of human uh, story about this sort of split between a, a father-son type relationship at the time, like they're sort of on better terms now. Um, then I had done another story, uh, a cover story for Sports Illustrated on Beckham uh, in 2007, I had gone to Madrid and uh, we did a big photo shoot and, and talked about what he was hoping to achieve in this American adventure. He had decided to sign with the Galaxy at age 31, which was earlier than maybe a lot of people expected that Beckham would come to the United States. And he signed a five-year deal. So the book was, a, was an interesting situation because even though I'd had that access to Beckham for Sports Illustrated, I did not have that kind of access one-on-one -on -one to him for the book. Uh, his people, even though we had a good relationship, wanted like a million dollars to participate and would have wanted control over the book, the content, and I, I wouldn't have given them that. So um, Beckham did a lot of, a, a lot of, group interviews and promotion in every American city he went to, especially at the start, he would do press conferences before and after. So I got his voice. I just didn't get it one-on-one -on -one, uh, for the book, but I got everyone else on the team one-on-one -on -one and, and had a lot of relationships with other players on the team, including Landon Donovan, uh, who ended up having a, a, a fascinating relationship with Beckham that started out pretty rocky and ended up, they won championships. But my book was on the first two seasons, which ended up being really unsuccessful seasons for the LA Galaxy. And I got as far inside a team as I've ever gotten in terms of uh, earning the trust of basically everyone in that team to, to tell me stories and give me the insight as to what was happening when you bring in a guy making $50 million a year, including endorsements and putting him in a locker room with players like Alan Gordon, who were making $30,000 a year and being expected to play on national television and succeed in front of crowds of 70,000. Um, and so 
there were just a lot of human stories to follow over those two years. And um, I ended up, you know, you never know where it's, uh, something's going to take you if you follow a team for two years. I sort of hoped that the galaxy would either be really good or really bad, not something in between, because whatever, if, it, you know, if they were an extreme, they would be more interesting. And it turned out they were really bad those two years. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it made for uh, an interesting read um, and, and worked out in the end just from a, from a literary perspective. And, and taking forward that literary perspective, you went to Princeton, I'm right in saying? Yes. Yeah, and you studied under John McPhee, David, David Remick, yeah? So I didn't get John, I, David Remnick is who I had, the, the guy who runs The New Yorker. Um, and John McPhee teaches a course called Literature of Fact, which is basically a, a, a intense writing seminar um, about basically for magazine writing and, and nonfiction writing uh, using literary techniques. And once every four years or so, McPhee would take the year off and there would be a, a visiting professor who would come in and run the class. And so the year I did it, David Remnick happened to be there. Uh, McPhee did come in for one course, but I still have the notebook of all the notes I took from that course. And it, I, I found it fairly recently and, and went back and looked at it. And I still use a lot of the same techniques we talked about then when I'm reporting and organizing a magazine story or a book and really trying to prioritize structure and spending time on, on coming up with a structure for telling a story that allows you to, um, to tell the story the way, the way you want to do it and, and remove some of the chaos from all of it. Yeah. That, that's what struck me. I mean, I read uh, David Remnick's book on Ali. I haven't read any John McPhee, but it's, it's on my list. But everyone talks about John McPhee, and that's what I was trying to get to with this. The fact is that having come from British sports journalism, I, you know, in British sports journalism, it's not all tabloid, but the tabloid aspect often often takes over. And so, you, you know, you're rich. Have you got four pars and nannies? You know, I want four par, pars, up pars of quotes to shove in here, and I'll top it and I'll bottom it. Whereas speaking to more to American sports journalists, okay, I've studied this at Princeton, I've, under this guy, under this guy at the, at the New Yorker, it's a little bit more crafted, a little bit more cerebral, a little bit more academic. So just weigh up, but well, A, do you agree? Secondly, just weigh up the pros and cons of that, because the British tabloids are great at what they do, and, and let's not uh, decry them for that. Yeah, I mean, for me, it all depends on on what type of a story I'm writing. If I'm covering a US men's national team soccer game and I'm on deadline to write a story for a website, I'm gonna approach that differently than I do writing a 5,000 word magazine story or an 80,000 word book, you know? And so you have less time if you're on a tight deadline uh, to structure out something. Now. I still do that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of like really quick put together sort of like, how do I want to tell this story structure wise, even on deadline, because that saves you time in the end, I think. Um, but it's just a different thing you're being asked to do. And what I've always tried to do is 
is try to be as good as possible at a lot of different types of work. And even if you're just talking about writing, there's a lot of different types of, of work with different levels of ambition and different needs. And uh, I, I just like having that variety. I, I, I wouldn't want to just do only one thing. Uh, I like the immediacy and the adrenaline of deadline journalism. I do still. Um, I also like the, I like to write stories of ambition that, I, that people will remember and never want to stop doing that, even though today's media uh, demands are less and less for, for that type of a story. Um, so, you know, and, and that's just when you're talking about writing, you know, like today, there's also all these other platforms that journalists work on, whether it's podcasts, uh, you know, whether it's video, uh, and, and there's different levels of storytelling that you can do on, on those platforms too. As Sports Illustrated, did, did you get the opportunity, and this is one thing I've always wanted to do, where you can go to a, uh, an event, uh, meet with the participants, and over a seven days or so, compose five, six thousand words with a photographer in tow, taking pictures, because that sort of journalism, the expense involved, in that sort of journalism is the very stuff that's been hit by the change in the model as far as I can see it. And you know, now you've, you've got to make a video blog of that to make it payable and get it paid via YouTube advert. But, but did you revel in that type of journalism at Sports Illustrated? Have you had the opportunity to do it? Yeah, I certainly have done that a fair amount over the years. Like it is interesting, you know, Sports Illustrated's print magazine was a weekly magazine for decades. And then about three or four years ago, it became a once every two weeks magazine. And then last year, it became a once every month print magazine. And obviously, on the digital side, there's a, a lot of immediate content on Sports Illustrated's website. But one thing that when I started at Sports Illustrated in the mid 90s, we were still doing a lot of print magazine stories where you would go and cover an event on a Saturday night, a game, whether it was a soccer game or a basketball game for me. And then you would be asked to file a story the next morning on Sunday off that game that would include potentially some stuff off that big game, but also some feature content in that magazine story as well. And what I remember a lot of times was pulling all-nighters to try and write stories for filing at 9 a.m. Eastern, but also whether the story would even run in those days would often depend on whether the team, the right team won. So if it was the team you were covering, and if they won, your story would run. And a lot of times it happened that I would be preparing a story on a team and they lost and then my story wouldn't run. It just would get flushed. And, and so that was kind of a crazy thing to have to get used to. And like, it's such a big deal in American sports journalism. You're not supposed to cheer in the press box or have favorites, but I would root for my story. I just wanted my story to make it. And 
Um, and so that was a, an interesting aspect of it. But then, you know, that was more in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then Sports Illustrated's print magazine started changing after that, where we did much less of that sort of writing off a news event because you would write off a Saturday event, but then people wouldn't get the magazine until Thursday. And, and so after a while, that became uh, not very useful uh, in, in the media landscape to have to wait that long for a story. And so the magazine started doing more feature stories, fewer things based off of news events. But I kind of like the fact that you weren't really in a situation anymore where your story wouldn't run if a certain result happened that was out of your control. Now, one thing that has changed or didn't change as much was for like the Super Bowl or like the World Cup final or the MLS final, like we would still write stories for the print magazine off of those events. Um, and, and so that was a little bit of a, a holdover. How do you look back on running for FIFA presidency? <laughs> that was fun. Um, so in 2011, uh, Sepp Blatter was running for FIFA president again. Uh, he had been in the position since 98 and obviously had been at FIFA a long time before that as the general secretary. And we have this history, especially in the US of sort of satirical campaigns for political office. So Norman Mailer ran for the mayor of New York City once and didn't think, you know, wasn't doing it to try and win, but, tr but wanted to make a point and influence things and get people thinking. Uh, there was a guy named Pat Paulson, a comedian who ran for president basically every four years uh, in, in a similar way. And so I decided to run for, announce my candidacy for FIFA president because no one else was running against Seth Blatter. And I, I sort of got tired of these one candidate elections that soccer politics seem to have all the time. Uh, in the end, this guy, Mohammed bin Hammam, did end up deciding to run against Blatter that, that time. But um, it, it was just, it was a few years before the U.S. government came down hard on FIFA in 2015 and started arresting a lot of people and finally putting the fear of God into some of these guys. Um, and event, you know, that led to Blatter leaving office. But we always sort of knew or had the idea that FIFA was dirty and, and the confederations and the national federations over the years. And it just seemed like a, it would be a, a creative thing to do. And we found out that like according to the FIFA statutes, anybody could run for FIFA president. And, and all you needed to do to be an official candidate at that time was to get one federation to nominate you. And what was interesting was I got a ton of media attention from a bunch of different countries. So I was able to get my opinions out about FIFA. And I, I had conversations with different national federations about potentially nominating me. And, and what they ended up telling me was, and I went to the UEFA Congress actually, in a sort of last ditch effort to try and get a nomination. What they told me was, we would actually be interested in nominating you 
And we think he would actually get votes in the actual election because it was a secret ballot, supposedly. But the problem, they said, was the, nominate, the nomination process was a public thing, and they feared blowback uh, from FIFA, from Blatter, if they actually did that. And I was talking to real federations. I was talking to Italy, Iceland, you know, different places. It would have been great, but I ended up writing about a 5,000-word story about my experience, um, which... I think is a pretty interesting story to go back and read just about how I experienced the whole thing. So it didn't, you didn't actually properly run because you didn't get the nomination. Right. There was a, there was a deadline. Right, okay. There was a deadline where you had to get that one nomination and I didn't get it. Um, and uh, they actually changed the rules after I, I did this to now you actually need five national federations to nominate you and not just one. Let's move on to MLS. So we're moving in 2021 to 25 years of MLS. I was over there working in 2015, 2016, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Always been a huge fan of US soccer. I remember writing when I was about eight, I wrote a project at school on the old NASL uh, back in the day with the, nice. uh, the Cosmos. In fact, I've actually got a Cosmos shirt on at the moment. Yeah. yeah there we go. Um, so where are we with MLS? Where's the progress? Where's the, where are we in its journey? Because it, it, it had a shaky start for a decade. Then there was some very solid growth. When I went over there, it was coming up to 20 years old and there was real positivity about where it would go. My sense is the growth gradient has flattened a little bit for certain reasons and there's challenges ahead. But what's your view? I mean, my first year as a professional journalist was the first year of MLS in 1996. So um, I've seen I've seen the changes uh, since then. And, and when you you know when you put 2020 MLS up next to 1996 MLS, you can I, I think the league can be pretty proud of of where where it's come from and where it is, and just the sheer numbers of teams now is impressive and the the willingness of these new expansion teams to spend half a billion dollars in expansion fee in stadium construction and building the team itself uh is is a huge change from as recently as uh probably 2005 when MLS couldn't get cities and, and prospective ownership groups interested at any price point in investing in the league. You know, the expansion fee has gone from like $5 million in 2005 to $325 million today, and there's competition for it. So at one point, the league had gotten down to 10 teams in uh, 2001, 2002. And it's gone from 10 teams to 26 now with 30 online for a couple of years from now. Uh, and it may grow after that. The question is, and has been, um, is the quality good enough of play? And it's not there yet. And there's always a concern when you add so many teams that it will dilute the quality. And also just MLS has not made it 
on television as a league yet in terms of television ratings, which drive television contracts and all of the, the big sports in the United States and globally, television is their main source of income. And that's not the case yet for MLS. It's still getting more money from gate receipts. So they have a new television deal coming up starting in 23. And the question is, is that going to be you know, significantly different in terms of as a source of income compared to the previous eight-year deal? And I don't know if it will be because the ratings still aren't there yet. So I'm impressed by how these billionaire MLS owners have stayed the course on, on their strategy. But there's still a... a an impatience among soccer fans in the US of like, we can see all these European leagues on television and we, we can see that they're better than what we see with MLS. Um, and, and so I still think it's a fascinating cultural experiment because MLS is basically the only league in the world that I, I know of, I mean, maybe China, but like that has the aspiration of becoming, you know, a, a, a league that would legitimately compete with the top four European leagues. But how do you get there? You know, like the Argentine league and the Brazilian league have some great players, especially young players, but they don't have the aspiration of competing to become one of the world's top leagues. And so we've seen MLS the last couple of years, the commissioner saying for the first time, we're okay becoming a selling league. Okay. But like, and maybe that's part of the, the transition to becoming a destination league, that you have to be a selling league first. But uh, this idea of when that's going to happen, when do you become one of the world's top leagues? When do you become a destination league? If you ask people like the commissioner, he'll he'll say, you know, 2022 or something like that. If you ask soccer people, if you ask Thierry Henry that question, he'll say it'll take quite a bit longer. Yeah, I mean, when I was there, it was League of Choice by, I think it was 2020. That's mm -hmm. what they were talking about then. And now it's changed. Was it 2020? I think it was 2020. Um, and now it's changed to the selling league. Um, you know, I suppose one of the most obvious examples is Almiron uh, coming out of Atlanta and going uh, to Newcastle. But you know, you've got this counterpoint with with Major League Soccer in the sense that some of the brightest U.S. national team talents don't spend a lot of time in Major League Soccer. They, they right. go to Europe very, very young. The obvious example being Pulisic, who was, I think, he was attached to a USL club. Was he attached to the Red Bulls at some point? But Philadelphia Union briefly. Right. Okay, but it's, it's a they get to Europe quickly in order in order right. to grow and to and to do, to develop their career. So there's an element of where does Major League Soccer fit into that puzzle if you're a top U.S. talent wanting to make it on the world stage. You know that's changed over the years, and certain players I think end up having an outsized influence on that. So. For many years, the best American soccer player on the men's side was Landon Donovan. And Landon Donovan, quite famously, did not want to play full-time in Europe. 
know, he had some time with Leverkusen. Uh, he went on loan to Everton twice, uh, went on loan to Bayern Munich once. But these were short-term loans. And he always said, I feel more comfortable being in Los Angeles. And he certainly had a, a very, very good MLS career and, and was able to show in World Cups, at least in 2002 and 2010, that he could, he could excel at the, at the highest level internationally. There was always a disappointment in some section of, of American fans that Donovan didn't want to test himself full time at the highest levels of the club sport. And so I think those were folks who embraced Clint Dempsey, uh, feeling like he got the most out of his potential um, in terms of an, an American who wasn't a goalkeeper because the goalkeepers had established themselves in Europe earlier, like Casey Keller, Brad Friedel, Tim Howard. Um, but for a field player to do that, you know, with Christian Pulisic's had a very big influence on sort of his, this generation of younger U.S. players. I, and they've told me that people like Weston McKenney have told me like Christian Pulisic sort of set the, the stage that, you could go to Europe, especially Germany, and get opportunities as a young player and use that as a launch pad. Tyler Adams, you know, somewhat similar, ends up being in the New York Red Bulls organization as a, as a youth player and then a couple seasons with their first team, gets moved to Leipzig and, uh, you know, I think could join one of the world's really top clubs in the next couple of years. Uh, Weston McKinney started with the FC Dallas youth organization, youth development, signs with Schalke. Now he's with Juventus. Uh, you know, there's several players. Gio Reyna is, is 17 and, and starting for Dortmund and, and just a very exciting, promising American player. Now, what's interesting about Gio Reyna and Christian Pulisic is they were both able to get EU passports that through their families that allowed them to go to Dortmund before they turned 18, actually quite a while before they turned 18. I think they were both 15 years old when they did that. And so clearly that helped their, uh, their you know, just their path uh, you know, being in Dortmund at a very early age and, and getting these opportunities at a club that's famous now for developing young players and giving them chances. So that's a little more common now as a pathway that we're seeing. There was a stage a few years ago when MLS teams were paying above market to bring U.S. national team players back to MLS. So Michael Bradley and Josie Altidore signed with Toronto, Clint Dempsey signed with Seattle. And I totally understand because they were getting paid above what they would have gotten paid in Europe, why they made those decisions. A lot of people thought those decisions weren't necessarily good for the US men's national team. Um, Including Klinsman, the coach, I think at the time. Correct, <laughs> correct. And, and so I do, I feel like it's a little different today. And part of it is, is because those guys were pushing 30 years old when they made those moves back to MLS and Polisic and McKenney and Tyler Adams, all those guys are 21 and 22 years old. And, and you know, I don't see them coming back to MLS for a really long time. In terms of US soccer and the national team, just talk about the men's 
um, team. We'll we'll talk about the women's game in a bit. Um, how big a blow was missing out on the World Cup? And of course, the political and legal issues that have been going on at US soccer. How how damaging are those two things together? I mean, I think the biggest thing is missing the World Cup in 2018 for the men. Um, the sport of soccer isn't mature yet in the United States. And so every World Cup becomes an opportunity to create millions of new fans of the sport in the United States and fans of the U.S. national team. And so if you don't have that, it's crushing. You know, it doesn't kill the sport, but it certainly is a gigantic missed opportunity. And I think U.S. fans are still pretty scarred about the whole experience. And a lot of people compared it to like, oh, you know, Italy and the Netherlands didn't make that World Cup, but that's entirely a different situation. Soccer is a fully mature sport in those countries, European qualifying. It, you know, a lot of good teams don't make it every four years. For the U.S. not to qualify out of CONCACAF was crazy. To do that, you have to finish fifth in a six-team tournament over 10 games. And teams like, you know, in no disrespect to Panama or Honduras, but, I mean, like to finish behind Panama and Honduras in a, a 10-game tournament over a long period of time, that's something the United States should never do. You know, it wasn't just one bad game. It was a lot. So the scale of failure was breathtaking. Um, and essentially there was like, whatever the opposite of a golden generation is like, that's what the U S had between at that time, the ages of 24 and 28, which should be the bulk of your team. There was almost nobody. And so that qualifying group was like Christian Pulisic, who was, I think, 17 or 18 at the time, was their best player. And then a bunch of guys in their 30s, like Tim Howard, Clint Dempsey. Um, and that was it. And then you add coaching uh, instability. Klinsman got fired probably two years after he should have been. And so they got zero points out of their first two games in that final turn qualifying tournament. Then Bruce arena comes in and uh, seems to have the U S on path to qualify. And then, and then two of the last three games are utter failures, losing at home to Costa Rica, losing at Trinidad and they don't go. And so I, I think it was maybe a, a bit of a reality check for people in the United States who sort of thought, oh, the U.S. men have made it. Well, no, <laughs> they hadn't. And, and yet now the fans are still scarred by it, but you're seeing for the first time ever all these young American players in their early 20s with important roles at big clubs, Chelsea, Dortmund, Barcelona, Juventus, Leipzig, and that's that's exciting. So you know, COVID has prevented the U.S. men's national team from playing for it, with its best team for over a year. But I think we're finally hoping to see that start to come together. The timing of the World Cup in USA, Canada, Mexico is that 
is that positive all round? Given obviously MLS came out of the '94 World Cup, but is it, it? It seems it's a really good time to give it another injection, another boost. It is a good time for it, and I, I think there's a real hope, a legitimate hope that uh, the '26 World Cup will will take soccer on a daily basis in the U.S. to the next level. Um, it would help to have a team that does well in that tournament. And that's certainly a possibility when you look at what's happening right now, but like that will be a, by far the most successful world cup in the history of world cups. It's kind of crazy to me that the 94 world cup in the United States, even today has the highest attendance in the history of world cups. And that was for a, a tournament that had just 24 teams. So they're going to go to 48 teams for this tournament in 26. And I think it'll probably set records for attendance and revenue that may not be broken for a long time. I think, uh, wasn't 94 played in a lot of college stadiums, wasn't it? So the stadiums were really, really big. Those NFL stadiums, yeah. NFL stadiums, yeah. So, uh, so. Whereas I think European World Cups are played, often played in 30,000s and things like that. But that said, I remember everybody thought, thought at the time the passion of the fans was much more than the, the anyone expected in 1994. And of course, going to the Women's World Cup 2015, I think I'm right in saying the final of that game was the most watched soccer game um, on television in US history. Yes, I think I'm right, and I'm not sure if that still stands, but it certainly was then. Yes, still and what, stands. And what is always struck me is the nature of the crowds for women's soccer and men's soccer, because we had a, in Colorado, we had uh, two friendlies back to back. We had Brazil versus Panama for a Gold Cup uh, warm-up game. Couldn't sell that out. Got about ten, twelve thousand in, and then we had. USA women versus Japan World Cup final repeat the first time they'd met and I think it sold out in about half an hour or something <laughs> like that and the and the crowds were entirely different I went to both games the crowds right. were entirely different for each game and and they were separate to the crowd you would get for an MLS soccer game so it was a very different crowd and of course you've got in the background of that you've got the the dispute with the with the women's national team over pay and it's, it's incredible that that's happened given the one of the issues that is always thrown at women's women's soccer over here is the fact that it was well, not as popular don't make it make as much money well the u.s women's national team is tremendously popular on television and that drives everything that's what we've spoken about before so it's incredible that that situation exists in in the u.s C can you just sort of unpick that for me a little bit it has been really interesting over the years to see not just the sport of soccer grow in America, but sort of the different audiences for different types of soccer. So it's very fragmented in some ways because pe people in the United States, there's a lot of people who follow soccer, but they may follow different things in the soccer world. So Literally, if you go by the numbers, the most popular soccer league in the United States is the Mexican League. It happens to often be broadcast in Spanish, but that's still in the United States, and, and those are still Americans. 
Um, the Mexican national team on the men's side is the most popular soccer team in the United States. And people hear that and, and like their head explodes, but like that's just the way it is. But there's also a growing number of fans for the US men's and women's national teams. But they also have, as you pointed out, some different audiences. Like there's some overlap, but um, it, it is a, a different audience. And I have to give credit to the, to the US women's national team over the years for they've had more resistance from their own federation than the men have had to two growing things. And they've become very popular sometimes, not with much help from the federation um, along the way. That includes not having equal pay. And, and so you know that has led to a lawsuit, which has become a very uh, important thing for a lot of people in this country to follow that. Uh, and it's still, some of it's still in process. We'll see where it goes. But it's pretty remarkable when you look at, at the sport of women's soccer and uh, you're right, that still is the, the record for the record TV audience for a single soccer game in the history of the United States is, is the 2015 Women's World Cup final, which took place in Canada. So it was a time-friendly situation. So that's why the 2019, which was in Europe, that final didn't have a higher number. It still had a big number. But yeah, it, it's, I, I, I have a lot of respect for both the men's side and the women's side for how they've grown over the years. But the women's success story is pretty amazing especially. What about the um, NWSL? I mean, there's been various iterations of that and it's, some of the leagues have worked, some of them haven't. Very interesting, the new ownership group, the high profile ownership group coming in in LA. And that's, and that's another indication, I suppose, of the success of soccer in the US, the LAFC ownership group being a very culturally important set of people, Will Ferrell, etc. And the is it Angel FC? It's called the Angel um, City FC. Yeah. Angel City FC. Uh, the the new franchise of the Women's League, which will be in LA in a, a few years' time. But where are we with that? With that Women's League, how strong is that? Because that seems a surprise given the real strength of the the Women's National. Yeah, it's always been interesting to me that there have now been three different women's top-flight professional leagues in the United States this century. And the first one was called the WUSA, had uh, Mia Hamm, Brandi Chastain, Julie Foudy, people who were, became household names during the 1999 Women's World Cup. That league only lasted three years before it folded and it went through over $100 million in those days, which was more than $100 million is worth today even. And then there was a second league called the WPS that also only lasted three years before it folded. So the NWSL started in, I think it was 2013 and at least it's lasted longer than three years. I think, you know, it's, it's looking at seven or eight now, but it had a slightly different structure where the U S soccer federation actually has paid the salaries of the national team players for their club play. And so that means the individual NWSL club owners haven't had to pay those salaries. And so they've saved money that way. And, and there appears to be a stability now that had been lacking in previous women's leagues. So that's, that's all good. Now, 
it's interesting. On the one hand, you, you could, I think it's accurate to say that the individual players on the U.S. women's national team today are the top six, maybe, are more popular and better known in the United States than the top six on the U.S. men's national team. So from a popularity perspective, the women's national team is in some ways more popular than the men's. And yet that hasn't carried over when you compare the women's professional league domestically to MLS. MLS has had more stability. They've had a lot more investment uh, because they have these billionaire owners. Um, they've been more willing to lose money over the years in a way that hasn't happened with owners who are not billionaires in the women's leagues. Right now, it appears to be a good time for what's happening with the NWSL because as you said, they're expanding with this team in Los Angeles. We're hearing about potential expansion to other cities. Um, television ratings have gotten better with the new TV deal they have with CBS. Um, so it's pretty promising right now for the women's league, even during the virus. Uh, so we'll see where it goes from here, but at least there's more stability. And now the question is, are, now that we're seeing European clubs starting to invest more in their women's teams, and we're seeing some top U.S. women's players go to European clubs from the NWSL, what's the NWSL going to do to try and compete? Yeah, I think I'm right in saying that the Alex Morgan to Tottenham story was one of the most popular stories on the Daily Mail website, the biggest newspaper site in the world. When that happened and the uh, two US women's national team players at Manchester United, their shirts are selling very, very well, better than the men apparently. So there is, there is a, a worthwhile commercial investment in that. The interesting thing, I suppose, is, is as you say, how does the women's league react to that? Because you could argue given the nature of, of women's football and where it is in its development, it has the capacity, stateside, to be the premium league. And this is one of the problems that MLS has, that everyone can now see the top five leagues in Europe, and it's clearly a better product, better standard of play than Major League Soccer. So there's an opportunity for women's football actually to start taking players the other way from Europe, potentially, if they can get, if they can get it right. I think so. You know, I mean, I like... They've gotten a few good European women's players to come to the NWSL over the years and, and, and actually did for some of the previous leagues too, where they could say, we've got the best women's league in the world. Um, I still think that's the case when you just take into account that it's much more competitive in the NWSL than it is in the French women's league. You know, and maybe the English league is getting to a point where there's, there's some, you know, multiple teams that are, are, competitive uh, and also it's a new development we can now very easily see the english women's league in the united states like they have a deal with nbc um, so i think the next few years are going to be really important for women's soccer globally um, and a lot of that growth comes from seeing what the women's game has done in the united states to this point and and feeling like that can be replicated elsewhere just getting back to the men's game, there's been a push in recent years to expand into America. Obviously, you know, domestically in, in, in Europe, media rights are, we've probably seen peak media rights. So clubs are looking to expand themselves internationally. There's two places they go, Asia, primarily China, 
and the US. And that's seen leagues like La Liga try and play domestic their domestic games in the US. That's been blocked. It's, there's an um, antitrust uh, the, the, uh, suit going around on this. So wh where do you see that at the moment? I think it was Relevant Sport was, was the organisation that was taking Barcelona to play a game over uh, in the US. Didn't happen, was blocked. But they're going to come back knocking on the door, aren't they? Surely, along with yeah, that, they're they're pushing for that. I mean, like it's this becomes a very political story in some ways because the U.S. Justice Department recently uh, announced that uh, they think preventing uh, actual league games from other countries in the United States, including from Spain potentially. Uh, might violate antitrust laws. And and it, it's not lost on anybody that the head of relevant sports, Steve Ross, who's also the head of, or owns the Miami Dolphins NFL team, is a big donor and fundraiser for Trump, the current president. And so Trump's Justice Department, which has also uh, come under criticism for being too much under the influence of politics and the president, uh, then does something that's a huge favor for, for Steve Ross, potentially. The results of which might be Barcelona versus Sevilla in the United States at some point. Um, we'll see if they can get that over the line. I interviewed the guy recently who is the CEO of Relevant Sports, uh, who said maybe in the next year or two, he would like to see that La Liga game in the U.S., so we'll see if it happens. I mean, clearly FIFA has been against it. Um, and I would say though, I understand where relevance coming from. They see the NBA staging regular season games in Europe um, and, and don't see why they can't do that with soccer in the United States. Obviously it's different. Soccer is a much more global sport, but um in terms of like the wanting international growth, I mean, just from my perspective, and I have no skin in the game, like I wouldn't necessarily be against each team being able to play one league game a year outside their country. I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world. Uh, that, that got discussed clearly at one point for this 39th game for the Premier League that got shot down, but um, you know, I don't think it would be the end of the sport. In terms of the lower echelons of men's football in the US. I mean, when I was over with Colorado, USL and NASL were uh, below Major League Soccer and they were kind of vying for, for supremacy. Certainly USL has won that particular battle and now there's USL 2, et cetera, et cetera. So how, how strong and well-organized, in your opinion, are the leagues below Major League Soccer? And have they benefited from the general growth with their franchise fees going up, for example, and better infrastructure? I mean, it seems like the United Soccer League has done a pretty good job in, in expanding and doing so with some stability. Um, you know, they have two levels now. They call it like the USL Championship is the second division and the USL League One is the third tier. Um, there's no promotion and relegation, 
Again? So it's, Again? Ob <laughs> it's, it's obviously uh, a different type of, of situation, but you know, the expansion fees for a USL team are not that high, you know, $5 million, $10 million. And so you're seeing known figures get involved in that. So David Villa is starting a USL team here in New York called Queensboro FC. It's going to be based in the borough of Queens. Uh, Landon Donovan is an owner of the USL team in San Diego. Tim Howard is an owner and a player still for the USL team in Memphis. Um, so there's, you know, and, and there's like lots of teams in non-MLS cities now across the country. So there is something of a, if not a pyramid that you can scale up or down, there's at least a pyramid of sorts um, that is, uh, is making the sport of soccer uh, more widespread professionally in the United States. Is, do, you, do you sense any element of a bubble around US soccer in terms of um, the fees surrounding expansion, but also sale? I mean, if we talked about RSL, I think the owner, obviously the owner's a certain type of person, but, right. <laughs> but um, I think he was he asking uh, 500 million, Orlando was looking 350, 400 million. So you're there thinking, you're looking at Newcastle potentially going for 300 to 300 million in terms of pounds. And of course, if they get their act right, they have the infrastructure to be a Champions League club with all the associated revenue around that. It just seems to me that, that there's a, a, a disconnect, a, a lack of correlation between those, those sorts of figures. I, I, there is some concern about a bubble around MLS because if you're like this idea of expansion fee, $325 million Charlotte pay in terms of an expansion fee goes to the other MLS owners. And I guess the question would be, if you're going to spend $325 million on an expansion fee and a couple hundred million, 300 million on a stadium. Now Charlotte's not doing that. They're going to play in the ML or an NFL stadium, but some of these teams are spending 500, 600 million dollars in startup. Like at that point, why wouldn't you spend that money to buy a Premier League team where there's actual television revenue currently? It's a good question. Uh, and so I, I think with MLS, you're still betting on the future to an extent, and you're betting on some degree of scarcity that they're not going to add that many more teams because they're already at 30. But it's a risk still, I think. Grant Wall, thank you very much. Thank you so much. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Richard